We are so glad that you're here. We're going to let uh, a second pass for the, the band to uh, exit the stage. Would you just again express your appreciation for our horn section today, for them being here? I'd so appreciate them being there. And if you're uh, a friend or family or loved one of one of the uh, folks that was up on stage today helping us, thank you for being here. Uh, if you don't have a church home, we'd love for you to continue to come to Chapel Rock. We're glad uh, to be, be part of that today. Uh, again, thank you for being here. Um, one of the things that was exciting to me on my vacation is I actually got to, uh, for the first time, uh, watch our live stream. Uh, as uh, just, I thought, you know what, here's, an here's a great opportunity for me uh, last Sunday uh, to watch that and to see it from the other side. And so we're excited about how that ministry continues to expand. If that's something you're interested in, or if you don't have a place to serve, um, we would really encourage you to, uh, to consider that as a place to do that. If you like photography, uh, or you like uh, videos and movie production, or just kind of interested in it, even if you're just willing to learn, uh, we, we could definitely use some more servants in that area here at Chapel Rock. So we're excited about where that's going. And if you're interested in that, uh, please come find me. I'll be right down here when we're done. And uh, we can talk about what that means uh, for you to find that place of service. Let's pray together this morning. God, we love you. We're grateful for the opportunity we have to be together today. Uh, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, Lord, many of whom uh, do not have the same freedom that we enjoy here. And so we express, first of all, our gratitude for, to you for our freedoms uh, for those who defend them. Um, and God, we pray for our brothers and sisters that you would continue to uh, use their uh, witness, their, their uh, faithfulness in the midst of persecution uh, to expand your kingdom. We thank you, God, that we're all one church. And so as we've come together today to worship you, to fellowship together, to hear your word proclaimed, uh, we pray, God, that you would speak to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I grew up in the 90s. I am part of the extreme generation. <laughs> everything, in the, I don't know if you remember this, everything in the 90s had to be extreme. You remember that? It, it, it had to be on the edge. It, it was my generation that invented the X Games. And all they did is take the stupid things that young men have done for years to impress women and turn them into sports. That's all that is. Okay, it, it was me and my idiot friends that would jump off a cliff into 40 degree water in November or freehand climb a cliff in, in the dark, both true stories. Um, <laughs> and even so, I was still blown away when a man named Felix Bumgardner jumped from the edge of space and parachuted back to earth, at one point breaking the sound barrier. Listen to him tell his story, watch. I've been working so hard the last 12 years to develop my skills and to take it to another dimension. And I think with this project, I definitely reached a peak. I believe in God and I truly think there is a plan that He has for everybody. And I also think He has a plan for me. It looks like I'm becoming an astronaut locking myself in a pressure capsule and going up to 130,000 feet. And I'm gonna slide the door open, bail out, and I'm gonna be the first human person in free fall who's breaking the speed of sound. That's his plan and that's probably my last goal that I have to accomplish.
Right now, I think I'm at a point or a level where I know exactly what I've been doing. It feels natural to me and I know how to deal with it. And to me, the Rebel Stratos project is the biggest thing that I can do. This is why I'm working on it. And I think this is what I've been made for. his testimony in that video. He makes it clear that he believes that God's plan for him involves some risk and some change, and you didn't see it there. If you were interested, just, you know, you can look on YouTube for Felix Bumgarner. You can actually watch him open the door and just, you see the curvature of the earth. He just jumps out. It's like, if you're afraid of heights, you might not want to watch that video. Um, It's amazing. He believes that God's plan for him involves some risk. It involves some change. We're going to talk about that today. I, again, I want to thank you for being here. If you're new to Chapel Rock, I would love to greet you. When we're all done today, I'll be right down front. Uh, please come down and say hi. If you're joining us online, uh, thank you so much for logging in. And if you're local, we'd love to have you visit us on site. Uh, when we're done today, a short video will play that will tell you how to take your next step with Jesus. We're, we're glad you're here. We're continuing a sermon series, as John said earlier, uh, through the book of Mark, looking at these passages that use Mark's favorite word, immediately. And it gives the text the feel of a newsflash. It's like this beep, 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 breaking news story. And it just, it's this short, punchy story that is, um, it really, it kind of helps us have that sense of immediacy about the gospel. If you've got your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. That's where we're going to be today, Mark 9, starting in verse 14. While you're turning there, let me give you a little background. In the first part of chapter 9, Jesus, Peter, James, and John had gone up on a high mountain, and those three disciples had seen Jesus transfigured before them. The text says that his clothes became white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And he shone with a light. It's, It's as if God says to his son, why don't you just take your glory back up for just a second and show these three who you really are? And Peter can't help himself. He begins talking. <laughs> you know, let's build a shelter. You know, and Moses and Elijah are there. And, and, and it's one of those moments that's just this profound, um, extreme experience for the disciples. Peter, James, and John ha- have had a mountaintop experience, literally and figuratively. They experience the glory of God. They experience Jesus for, for what he was like before he came to earth. <laughs> Just, they get just a glimpse. The, the, the curtain is pulled back just a little bit. And they're coming down off the mountain, literally and figuratively. And we come to our text. Now, don't we to miss this. Jesus and the three have been up on the mountain, on the edge. The other nine have not. So you keep that in mind as we read the text. John, uh, Mark uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples... They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Now, were they overwhelmed because he was a miracle worker and a great teacher, or was there some lingering glory still on his face? Remember, after Moses met with God, he had to veil his face because of the radiance of God was still present there. Maybe, maybe that was what was overwhelmed. We don't know. But they ran to greet Jesus. Verse 16, what are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son, who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. 
Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately, Mark's favorite word, immediately threw, Jesus, threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, I, I would love to see Jesus' body language here. Was he, I, I, I just see Jesus being like a doctor in this moment, diagnosing the problem. A doctor with a good bedside manner. Some of you have had the privilege of having a doctor like that. You see the care and concern furrowed across his brow. You see him watching the boy and, and kind of leaning down and, and, and taking a posture of humility as he looks at the boy and then asks his dad, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. Verse 22, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. Again, Mark's favorite word, immediately. The boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Now, can you identify with the people in this text? Can you connect in your own life with what's happening here? The text ends with the disciples saying, why did we fail? In the middle, you have this father saying, help me. I'm struggling to believe here, Jesus. Help me. I think we're still dealing with those things. I mean, how often do we say things like, Lord, I know what you said, but... <laughs> or, or, God, I know you promised this, but... So if you're here this morning and you're struggling with feeling like you've failed God, or if there's an area in your life where you're dealing with doubt, <laughs> congratulations, you're in the right place. And you're among good company, because the same people who hung out with Jesus dealt with those issues. But here's the thing. I want you to understand something this morning. Jesus is not thrown off by your failure. He loves you the same no matter what. He didn't stop loving his disciples because they blew it. He is not disappointed with somebody on the edge of faith who's struggling to believe. He just wants to make sure you move in the right direction. So how do we do that? How does Jesus help us recover from, from failure and move past areas of our life of unbelief? How does Jesus change us in those moments? I think this text suggests two ways. And we see them play out in the actions of the disciples and, and the interaction of Jesus and this father with his son. The first way that Jesus helps to change us is that he wants to help us move beyond the edge of failure. 
He wants to help us move beyond the edge of failure. This text, really, this story really resonates with me, and I'll tell you why. It is because of my own spiritual failures. <laughs> it's because of the times I've messed up that this really connects with me. It's because my own spiritual failure feels to me like I assume that the disciples' spiritual failure felt to them. Now, some of you are thinking, what on earth does that even mean? <laughs> what are you even talking about? It's like this. It's like when you pray and it feels like your prayers are just kind of bouncing off the ceiling back at you. You ever had that feeling? It's like when you struggle to be motivated to spend time reading God's word and even memorizing it, but you don't seem to have any problem memorizing quotes from your favorite movie. It's like when, when you know you're being selfish with your time and you don't care. Like, I know I want what I want and it's going to hurt somebody else and right now I just don't care. It's like when you have made a commitment to serve and you go, nah, it's just too inconvenient right now. It's like that. It's those moments. And I see it in the disciples, and I see it in myself, and if you'll let me be uncomfortably honest, I see it in you too. And so does Jesus. So Jesus and the three come down off this mountaintop experience. Jesus wades right into this argument, which was probably, we don't know for sure, but it was probably about the teachers of the law claiming that Jesus was a false teacher because his disciples had failed to heal the boy. They failed. Um, in, in the first century Jewish context, uh, God bless, you know, that, that success was a sign of God's blessing and approval. Well, they blew it, so clearly Jesus must be a false teacher. I mean, that's probably the connection in their mind. And the disciples' failure has now shamed them into silence. <laughs> Jesus says, what are you arguing with them about? You understand, he's talking to his disciples. He's not talking to the teachers of the law. He's not talking to the crowd. He's talking to, to the, the nine that are there. What are you arguing with them about? They don't answer him. They're ashamed. It's the father of this boy who answers. He says, teacher, I brought you, my son. He brought the boy to Jesus. Jesus wasn't there. He was up on the mountain hanging out with his father, with Moses and Elijah. And so it fell to the disciples to heal the boy. And so we read about the condition of this child, and, and to our modern eyes, the symptoms look a whole lot like epilepsy. Now, I have a sister who's epileptic. My sister Annie, uh, the older of the two. There are four of us Scott kids, two boys, two girls. She's the older of the two. Um, is epileptic and diabetic. And her husband, Michael, has on more than one occasion saved her life because she went into a seizure and her jaw locked up and he was able to get something, some, so it's, it's triggered by her diabetes. And so he was able to get some sugar in her that kind of brought things back and, and she was okay. But um, she's had many of the same symptoms as this child here. And so modern readers, skeptics, will read this and go, well, it wasn't really a demon. It was a, she had epi the boy had epilepsy. Okay, looks like that, Sure. Jesus says it's a demon. <laughs> so if I have to choose between Joe Bob, who looked on WebMD for 10 minutes, and Jesus, I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. He ought to know. And so the father says, I ask your disciples to drive it out, literally throw it out, and they failed. He said, look at verse 18. He says, I asked him to do it. They could not. Literally, they were powerless. They failed. 
They failed at something. Now, here's the thing. They failed at something that they had previously been successful at doing. You need to understand that before this point, the disciples had cast out demons. They had already done this once. Mark chapter 6, verse 12 says, They went out, Jesus sent the twelve out on a preaching, teaching mission. They went out and preached that people should repent. Verse 13, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. They failed at something that they had previously been successful at doing. Why? I think the answer is in verse 19. Jesus says, Oh, unbelieving generation. He's rebuking his disciples in that moment. He's not talking to the crowd. He's talking to the nine. He's frustrated with them. Can you see this? How long am I going to have to be with you? How long am I going to have to put up with this from you? Have you ever felt like God feels that way about you when you sin? That he's up in heaven going, McFly! Come on, man. I do. Now here's the thing. The disciples failed because they were acting like unbelievers. They weren't actually unbelieving people, but they were acting like they were. And that's why they failed. I, I got to see this uh, play out one time um, in, in a situation that was uh, really it just stuck in my mind. This happened years and years ago. When I was in college, um, my home church camp put up a high ropes course, an obstacle course up in the trees, 30 feet off the ground. And there's an element in that ropes course called a seven-foot jump. All right? There are two platforms, nothing connecting them. All right? they're, they're four feet apart and three feet difference in height. So four plus three, seven, seven-foot jump. All right? So all you have to do in this element, and, and here's the thing, these kids were wearing a full body harness, went over their shoulders, went under their legs, wrapped around their backside, hooked on here with two safety lines that were both rated to hold a ton each. All right, on two different safety cables, the carabiners slid on these steel cables perfectly. There's no way you can fall. It's not possible. And all you have to do is jump from one platform to another. It's only four feet out and three feet down. It, it, it would be like me jumping just out in front of this microphone. It's not that big of a deal. But it's 30 feet off the ground. And there was a girl there. She was an athlete. She had the physique to pull it off. She, she, there, was, there was no reason at all that this girl should have failed, but she freaked out. And so we're up on the platform, and the kids are still coming behind her, and she won't go, she won't go, she won't go. And we're kind of like, okay, honey, you need to go now, you need to go now. The kids are piling up behind her like, okay, if one more kid comes up, you're going off this thing whether you want to or not, lady. And so finally, she kind of screwed up her courage and, and was ready, and just at the last second kind of flinched and chickened out and bashed her shins into the edge of the thing, and it was a mess, and we had to, and then we did have to, like, get up there and cut her down, and it, oh, it was awful. I felt bad for her. See, here's the application. When you fail spiritually, it's because you're acting like an unbeliever. That's what was going on with the disciples. That's what happened. It's not, that, it's not to say you actually are one. Please hear me clearly. I'm not saying that you lose your salvation. I'm not saying that your relationship with God is in jeopardy. I'm just saying you're just acting like an unbeliever, and that's why you fail. You fail because you're acting like someone who doesn't believe. 
And because God loves us, and because he's shaping us to be like Jesus, he allows us to have the consequences of acting like unbelievers. That unbelief brings about failure. It's one of the ways that we learn. The good news is that God's grace is bigger than your times when you act like an unbeliever. And Jesus is trying to teach us to, not to live like unbelievers, you know. He, he wants us to foster such a close relationship with him that active faith becomes a natural extension of who we are. So the disciples come to Jesus in verse 28, we, we read privately, probably because they're ashamed, and they say, why couldn't we drive it out? In other words, why did we fail? Have you ever done that? Go to God in prayer. Why, God? Why can't I do what you want? Why am I still struggling in this area of my life? Why am I failing at this? By the way, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul did it in Romans 7. He says, the good I know I ought to do, I don't do, and the evil I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Paul was there. We see examples of Peter doing it too. We go to God and we say, why can't I do what you want? Why do I fail? And here's the thing. God the Son has already answered that question. His answer is in verse 29. He says, this kind can only come out by prayer. And I think prayer here is, is I mean, he's speaking literally. You need to be praying about this. But it's also a figure of speech. It's really symbolic of the broader sense of, of investing in your relationship with God. If you want to move past the edge of failure, you need to invest in your relationship with God. So what are some ways that you can do that? Well, the standard answer for years has been read your Bible, pray, go to church. Do you know why that has been the standard answer for years and years and years? Because it works. If you go into it expecting to, to get something out of it, if you go into it with the expectation that God is going to use this to change you, it will work. Just generically, cross the board, doesn't matter about the way you're wired up. It'll work. All right? here's the thing, Here, so let's break this down. It's, it's not just the rote routine of, oh, it's just it's what we do, it's just this dead, cold religion. No, here's the thing. You need to hear from God, you need to speak with God, and you need to be in relationship with God's people. You need to hear from God, you need to read his word. It blows me away. Christians will say, I don't know what God's will for me is. I'm like, are you in the word? No. Come on. Are you, you're not even listening to him. So hear from God. You need to speak with God. And I chose that word very carefully. If your prayer life is just speaking to God, you're only halfway there. If you're just giving him your laundry list of stuff you want him to do for you, that's only about half of what your prayer life ought to be. Because the other half is listening. Being still before the Lord. Listening to him speak to you. And you need to be in relationship with God's people. We do this thing called church together. You're not really doing it. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. I mean, come on. You got, we got to do this with somebody. And these things work across the board. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter why you are. It's the standard answer. Go to Bible, you know, read your Bible, pray, go to church. Because it works. But we are also kind of all wired up a little differently. And there are aspects of your personality and your spirituality that are different than the way I'm wired up. And if you're like, well, how does that work? I would encourage you to read an excellent book I've been reading. Gary Thomas wrote a book called Sacred Pathways. Fantastic book. Uh, most of the way through it, I, I was hoping to get it done on my vacation. Didn't quite pull it off because 
uh, I have kids. So, uh, <laughs> but it was great. But I'm working through this, and it's just kind of the nine different styles, nine different ways that people are wired up to relate to God. And so the, the standard answer for years has been, you know, read your Bible, pray, go to church. But this is also a fantastic thing to really focus in on the way God's wired you up to serve him. Great resource. Highly, highly recommend that. That's one way that God wants us to move beyond the edge of failure. But there's a second thing this morning. He wants you to move beyond the edge of faith. Jesus wants you to move beyond the edge of failure by investing in your relationship with him. He also wants you to move beyond the edge of faith. He says, bring the boy to me. And they do. And he instantly manifests the symptoms they were talking about earlier. This father's desperate, right? The spirit is constantly trying to hurt his son. He can't bear to watch him be tortured anymore. Dads, those of you who are fathers in here, how many of you, by show of hands, have prayed this prayer when your kid is sick? God, just, I'll, I'll take it. How many of you have prayed that prayer? God, would you just let me be sick and let the kid be okay? You know, or maybe you've seen him get hurt playing sports. Not the normal hurt, like, oh, come on, shake it off, you're fine. But like, there's blood, okay? And like, you, oh God, just, I'll take it. Just let me hurt for the kid. Just don't let them, that's the way this dad is. He's desperate. He comes, he brings the boy to Jesus. Jesus isn't there. The disciples are. They try to heal the boy. They fail. It's understandable then that the, that the father would have doubts about Jesus' ability. <laughs> He's struggling in his faith. He says, if you can do anything, <laughs> oh man. There are lots of times when I read the Bible that I wish I could be a fly on the wall just to see what that was like, just to hear the tone of voice. Like, what are the, This is number one. This is the top of the list. I wish with all my heart I could have been there to hear Jesus' tone of voice when he says, if you can, verse 23. Like, how did he say that? Because it makes such a difference in how we understand it. How did he say it? Did he say it like, if you can? Like, dude, I'm Jesus. <laughs> like, if you, you are talking to the only one who can do something about this for sure. Did he say it like that? Like, if you can. Like, come on, man. Do you, you know who you're talking to? Or did he say it like this? If you can. Did he throw it back in the guy's face? Did he, did he say, do you have faith? Do you believe that I can? If, if you can do something about this. I, I do not know. There's no way to know for sure. Sometimes the gospel writers tell us about Jesus' emotional state. You know, he was irritated or he was annoyed or he had compassion. They don't say that here. We, we really don't know. I don't know how he says it but I know what happens next. He says, all things are possible for him who believes. It's a consistent theme in the New Testament. It's the exact same thing Mary to, uh, the angel told Mary in Luke 2.37 when she found out she was going to be the mother of the Son of God. In Luke 17, Jesus told his disciples the same thing when he said that if your faith is as small as that of a mustard seed, you can move mountain. Jesus wants you to move beyond the edge of faith. Now, here's, let me define what I mean by faith, okay? Faith is not just intellectual agreement with things that the Bible says. Faith is not just blind, uninformed trust that God is going to give you everything you want. Let me define it this way. Biblically speaking, when you look at the whole canon of Scripture, here's what faith is. Faith is the lifestyle orientation of belief in, dependence on, and obedience to God. That's faith. When you look at the whole canon of Scripture, all of the Bible, and you say, what's the big picture perspective on what faith is? It's more than just intellectual assent, okay? It's more than just a warm fuzzy in your heart. It's bigger than that. This is, biblically speaking, this is what faith is. Faith is the lifestyle orientation of belief in, dependence on, and obedience to God. 
Now, starting on Easter Sunday morning, we're going to begin a new sermon series called You Ask For It. And it's the questions that you ask we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Following that, in the middle of May, uh, we're going to start a series on the life of Abraham called Man of Faith. My dad uh, from Ozark Christian College is going to be here to lead that one off. I'm excited about that. So we're going to spend some time over the course of the, the early part of the summer, first half of the summer, talking about what it means to have faith in God. But right here, let's just say this. Faith is the lifestyle orientation of belief in, dependence on, and obedience to God. The point Jesus is making here is this. If you believe, if you have faith, then you can do anything that is within the will of God. If you have faith, you can lead a life group or teach a Sunday school class. If you have faith, you can visit sick people or preach a sermon. If you have faith, you can work in our children's ministry. You better have faith for that. Have you met those kids? Um, <laughs> Scott kids are weird, man. Um, no, I, listen, hey, Easter's coming up. It's a few weeks away. That's always a time we need uh, some more help. So if that's an area where God's moving your heart today to, to do that, you can send an email to Mike Belcher, our children's pastor, Sherry Schwab, our early childhood director, and, and they will be in touch with you uh, about how you can serve that way. We, we continue to um, have folks that, that, that say that that's a blessing for them. Uh, many of you have served before. Maybe you took a break, and it's time to re-up. This guy says, help. He says, help me. And the word he used there means to run and go get help. It's kind of like, hey, you know, Lassie, Timmy's in the well. Go. Um, it's that idea. And so it's often used of doctors. Can you see this scene? He comes to Jesus to get help for his son, but his son's not the only one who needs help. He does too. Help me, he says. A big part of the way that Jesus changes us to be like him is that he works, uh, he works in us to help us move beyond the edge of faith. He's not threatened by this guy or by you being on the edge. Jesus isn't threatened by that. He wants to make sure you move in the right direction, though. His work in you is to teach you to, to learn how to step toward the edge and then step off of it, <laughs> move beyond the edge of faith to move out beyond it and see what's possible in him. And the only way you'll ever do what's possible in Jesus is with his help. How does that happen? I've already told you. You invest in your relationship with him and you have a lifestyle orientation of belief in, dependence on, and obedience to God. Jesus can see this crowd getting bigger and bigger, so he acts quickly, immediately, to bring a conclusion to the situation. He rebukes the spirit and says, basically, get out and don't ever come back. Now, that's the only time in all the times that Jesus cast out a demon, that's the only time he ever said, don't come back. Why? Why? Why this time and not like, because you would think that would be kind of standard operating procedure, right? I mean, isn't that what everybody who has like some, a family member who's demon possessed would want to hear? Get out, don't come back. Oh, great. Okay, we're not going to have to deal with this again. Awesome. It's fixed for good. It's the only time he says it. Why? It's because the father's faith is still very fragile. It's because the father is struggling and he's in this moment of, of doubt and struggle and hardship and he's trying to figure out like what's going on here. And, and, and because of that, I think Jesus says to this demon, do not come back so that the father's faith has time to grow. See, even as this spirit is coming out, it shrieks in defiance. It gets in one last jab, this violent convulsion. The boy looks dead. 
Everybody there thought he was dead. So either Jesus saw something they didn't see, or maybe this is a bigger miracle than we even realize. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus, the powerful servant of God, bends down, he grabs this boy's hand and pulls him out of a nightmare into waking reality of life and joy and peace. See, think back for a second. Jesus said in verse 23, everything is possible for him who believes. What's the next word? Immediately. Can I suggest to you this morning that if you want to be changed by Jesus, you should not walk out of this room without calling out to him immediately, asking him to help you move beyond the edge of failure and help you move beyond the edge of your faith. See, I grew up in a generation fascinated by the extreme. We're always looking for the next adrenaline rush. And sometimes, though, I wonder if that was just a placebo for a life of real faith, a life of really trusting God with everything and, and being dependent on Him. We go, yeah, man, I'm going to strap on this board to my foot and fly down a mountain at 60 miles an hour. Woo! Mountain Dew, yeah, um. And instead, God says, would you trust me to direct your steps? If you'll depend on me, I'll give you an adventure you can't even wrap your head around. That's what God is challenging us to this morning. A life that's constantly being changed by Jesus, living beyond the edge of faith, is the most extreme thing you can do. And do you know why? I'll tell you. Do you know why that's the most extreme thing you can do? I'll tell you. It's because the moment you master stepping out over the edge, God moves the edge. He pulls it out a little bit further. And it's not because he's some cosmic prankster or some divine buzzkill. No, it's because he's stretching you. He's changing you. He's helping you become more like Jesus. And just when you get this faith thing figured out, like, oh, yeah, I got it, God goes, whoop, and he moves it further out. <laughs> because that's the way Jesus lived his life. Jesus was constantly on the edge of faith, constantly, one more thing, one more thing. He's constantly being stretched every moment of his life in complete surrender to the will of God. That's what he wants for you and me, friends, to be like Jesus that way. It's in those moments when we learn to step beyond our failure and to step beyond our, the edge of our faith, that's where God changes you. That's where Jesus changes you. Have you heard me this morning? Here's what I want to tell you today. When you invest in your relationship with Jesus and you choose faith over unbelief, Jesus himself will change you. He will reach down from heaven. He will take your hand and he will put your feet on a solid rock. He will pull you out of a nightmare into real life. He will forgive your failures and teach you how to really live. He will open up opportunities and possibilities to serve like you've never even imagined. So my question is, how are you going to respond to that today? Maybe you need to come forward and have somebody pray with you. Maybe there's an area in your life that's been dominated by failure. I need someone to come around you in prayer and, and, and be praying with you. We've got decision counselors down here who will do that. Maybe there's an area of your life where, where you've still got some questions. You're like this father here, and you're like, I believe, but I'm struggling with this, and, and you need to have a conversation with someone. Under the yellow awning is our next step room. And I would encourage you to go there. We've got folks there that will talk with you and be able to have that conversation. Maybe you want to get plugged in serving. 
You're like, yeah, I, what you said earlier, that's me. That's where I'm at right now. And again, you could go to the next step room. You could come talk to us. You could write on your connection card. Hey, I want to serve. We'll be in touch with you this week. Maybe you're here today and you're like this boy. You're like this boy. You need Jesus to reach down and grab your hand and pull you out of a nightmare and to save you and to rescue you so that you can give your life to him and you can experience this life of faith like we're talking about today. You come forward and make that confession. Receive Christ this morning. I don't know what your need is. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we sing together today and you have an opportunity to respond to God's word this morning.